your girl Charles and welcome back to another episode of Mama Drama Podcast. I hope you guys have been well because I've been great. Um, guys, if you're not subscribed, make sure you subscribe, hit the notification bell so you don't miss a video. And if you are listening on any of our um, streaming platforms, make sure you rate us five stars on all of our streaming platforms. And yeah, let's get straight into this episode. Um, I don't know if you guys remember, but I can't remember. Was it? It wasn't episode 100. It might have been episode 97 or something. Don't quote me on that. But we had Marsha and three um, lovely mothers who joined us from the Black Sen Mothers Group or Mamas Group. Um, and that ep was monumental. It got so much feedback. So much was going around. People were DMing, messaging, connecting, and it was amazing. Um, and I just think it I just wanted to shout out Marsha really for actually creating such a group for mothers, for parents to connect with one another um, where their children have got those additional needs. So I spoke to Marsha behind the scenes and I said, um, I think it would be amazing to actually have some black SCN, so special educational needs professionals on as opposed to more parents as the part two. So this is what we've got going on today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask the lovely guests to my right and I'm just going to go around, ask them to introduce themselves, what their role or designation is, and um, we'll get into the episode there. Oh, hello. Uh, my name is Simone. Um, I am a special needs teacher, um, but I've also got five children with additional needs. My name is Kemi. I'm an assistant head teacher in Senko and also the founder of the Young Black Teachers Network. And yeah, that's what I do. Uh, my name's Paige. I'm a former assistant head teacher in Senko. I'm now working as an SEN consultant and a tutor. Wow. Congratulations, guys. Can you just hold the round of applause? <laughs> I love to see black women in professional posts and doing things, you know, within the community and supporting our children of tomorrow, but especially for those children who have got additional needs. So thank you very much for obviously what you're giving back to the community in terms of your designations and professionalism. Um, I think this is just going to be an open question. So feel free, whoever wants to jump in first. What made you get into the field of being an SCN um, professional? Oh, Whoever wants to go first, <laughs> no pressure. So for me personally, it, um, I was working in a pupil referral unit for a few years and 90% of the students were black, Okay. Um, black boys. And a lot of them had undiagnosed needs, um, needs that were not met in mainstream, hence why they were excluded from school and it was put down to behavioral issues. And that really, um, it weighed heavy on my heart because I felt like they were failed in the mainstream, in mainstream settings. So hence why they were now with me in the pupil referral unit. And I wanted to be that, that advocate, that voice for them in the pupil referral unit, because we know about the pre to prison pipeline. And I didn't want it to be like, this is it. Their needs haven't been met and they're going to be failed by us as well. So what is the next step? So that was one of my main reasons. Um, I think for me, working in mainstream schools, and working with children with additional needs, I feel like I always built a strong rapport with those children, families. I just felt like that was my passion. I feel like it's always been my passion. Um, I worked in a school that had like predominantly um, black members as part of SLT and seeing somebody in the position that I aspired to be in made me like motivated to go and do that. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, those reasons. And um, for me, um, was my children. I formerly was a graphic designer and 
um, when I realized that I was, my children were identified with a need um, one by one, I, I then realized that actually I wanted to change my whole career. Um, and so that I would be around for my children during the half term. And just to make it easier for me in terms of being able to work, but also to being able to look after my children. So I decided to train as a teacher and then gravitated to a special needs school. Mm-hmm. And I felt that helped me to upskill my own skills as, as a professional, but also as a parent. Um, and that's the reason why I kind of, yeah, went into that field. Into that field. Thank you. That's that's amazing to hear. And well, obviously not what, what you said, Kemi, but in terms of like just um, seeing that representation in the people referral units and just noticing that a lot of these young black males do have additional needs that are probably undiagnosed. And we did highlight this in the previous episode. Make sure you guys check it out. Um, but then obviously, how do they get that support before they are connected with a probation officer and then they're in the criminal justice mm-hmm. Um, system and then they're just they're just left to the wayside essentially because what other services or units or I don't know things are there for them to actually access um to to you know prevent them from becoming another statistic another number um so that's that's really interesting you mentioned something Paige about the SLT um I'm familiar with that term but I don't think maybe our guests will know so what is that and what 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 is the SLT yeah apologies so like in schools Mm -hmm. um Steve I worked as a teacher but SLT basically is the senior leadership team so that's like assistant head teachers deputy and then the head head teacher all sort of fall under the umbrella Mm -hmm. so seeing like I said black women in that position I thought oh I could do that because also what I found is that there were a lot of children with SEN that were sort of being failed. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I was able to, like I said before, build relationships with them and get, you know, um, an outcome that other people couldn't. So I thought, you know what, I want to continue, you know, and just my professional development and just see how far I can go to make an impact with those children. Okay. So just out of interest, um, I don't know how many schools you've worked in or whether you're in a specialist provision now or whether you're whether you're in mainstream education. Um, but in terms of percentages, how many children would you say are within a school setting that are registered with SEN needs? And how does that come to your attention as maybe a head teacher or a deputy head teacher? Anyone can answer. <laughs> Mine is a bit different because mine is a, a special needs school. Yeah. So percentages, everyone's in there is special, special needs. needs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So for me, working in, I worked in a primary school um, mm-hmm. and I would say that there was quite a high percentage of children, um, probably between like 30 to 40%. But then you have quite a lot of children that are un- undiagnosed as well. And so it's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly how much, but there's, I would say um, there's quite a lot, mm. um, which is quite worrying, I would say working in obviously special school as well all of them have um ehcps mm. diagnosed so varies mm. okay and then how does a child or a young person if they're in secondary school come to the attention of the SEN team okay so usually from primary school during that year six to year seven transition that's where they should be picked up however we know some students go under the radar or um information is not always passed from the primary school to the secondary school or maybe a student is an in-year admission where they've come from another country so we tend to do 
um, in the schools that I've worked in, they will all do like a baseline kind of test, okay. which is either like the CATS test, cognitive ability test, or we have the um, PTS, forgive me, I can't remember what that stands for. But it's just like a baseline test in terms of maths, English and science. When we see that the scores are particularly very low in maybe one area compared to another, we might, you know, not we might, but we tend to um, dig a little bit further and find mm -hmm. out what the need is there. Um, some students we know they have a need from primary school but maybe this primary school has not applied for an educational healthcare plan so then we take that on to make sure that those needs that have been identified they actually have a plan a legally binding plan to support them that they can that they'll have with them throughout their secondary life but that transition phase is so important because if if something goes if something gets missed or goes under the radar it, it just takes even longer to put the right support in place for those students and that can you know, cause further delays and or further issues in other subjects. Um, I think something that I've noticed particularly is when, if the communication's not there between the secondary school and the parents or the primary school and the secondary school, when there's that disconnect, it's just, it's just not going to work. Mm. So how we have to identify <clears throat> them is doing our own testing. But if we can have the diagnosis and have everything we need from the primary school, we can continue the work that they've been doing to put that support in place. In place, okay, that makes sense. So just a scenario, um, what if a parent has strong intuition that their child might have uh, additional needs and they're going to the primary school, for instance, they're, they're, they're saying, look, my child's got, they're not doing this or I'm concerned about these behaviours. I really think that there's something here. What do I do? How do I go about, you know, making sure that they're getting the support that they need to within education? And the school, primary school might dismiss it or just say, no, it's fine. It's common in that age or so on and so forth. What advice are you giving to that parent? What should they actually do? What action should they take? I think uh, second opinion, second opinion. I think... Um... The problem is, is that sometimes there's lots of barriers with, with uh, families and sometimes if they feel that there's something wrong with their child and someone says there, there isn't, then they, I think for some of the parents that I've seen, they go back into this almost like this shell where they, they, they want their child to be able to be doctors and lawyers and that kicks in and they forget that their child has a need and that it doesn't mean they can't aspire to do anything mm -hmm. or be anyone. But and and so what happens is is that they 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 then form this this bubble whereby there's nothing wrong with their child and they don't actively like what you were saying, Kimmy, they don't actively seek advice or they don't go out there to persevere and get all the information they need. But I think from my personal experience, I think um, with my own children is that you just got to keep on knocking on every door. If you feel your child needs help and you've been refused by one agency, try another, keep on going um, and hopefully eventually. And if you can or you're in that position, get a second opinion by going private if you can, uh, because, uh, you know, for some reason, the private assessments do upheld um, a lot more than some of the council assessments. Mm -hmm. um, so that obviously it's costly and that's another route. But I feel if you get a lot of professionals on board and you, you know, go to your GP as well as all the other professionals, um, it does help. Um, get all the information that you need so that you can get the right support for your child. But sometimes it is a bit tricky if the school is not on board. Um, but as a parent, you know your child best. And so if you feel your child has got a need, you're probably 99% 
you know, right that they have got a need. So it's about persevering, about um, making referrals to CAMS. And you can self-refer yourself to CAMS. Um, you can self-refer to most things now. Um, so I would say CAMS is, is a great way to go forward. Um, or if you can, privately or seek out different um, platforms as well that can help you like send mamas help me as well um and there's loads of people on that forum that have different um professional links mm -hmm. um so yeah there's there's quite a few ways to to get support okay i'm gonna throw a spanner in the works because i know that cams are not great <laughs> and i'm gonna say that <laughs> Alrighty. I've said it. Um, I know that <laughs> this is an honest podcast. We keep it real and raw over here. I know that cams, they're bogged down. I know that there's a lot of the waiting lists are excruciatingly long. They're saying it's up to like, what, three years or so. And that's in varying local authorities in mm -hmm. terms of like timescales as to when they can even offer an appointment mm -hmm. to a, mm -hmm. a child or a young person. So um, a lot of the families that we are, you know, we do work with or that come to our attention and stuff like that, um, a lot of them are not going to be able to afford private. Let's just be frank. Um, so what do they do then? So in my school, mm -hmm. or from my experience, if students who are not able to get on that, they are on the CAMS waiting list, but it's going to take a while mm -hmm. or um, for them to be assigned a clinician, for example. Um, we have something called the mental health support team who come under CAMS. Okay. But it's for students who don't meet that threshold for mm -hmm. CAMS. So at least they can start getting the support in another way before they're, you know, before they're seen by a CAMS clinician. You said up to three years. That is a very long time. I was already infuriated at, you know, a 20 week wait, mm -hmm. let alone having to wait for three years. So being able to be assigned a clinician that, that you know, that can take up to four months or whatever. Um, or five months, and then to even get a diagnosis for something, like we know to get an autism diagnosis at this point, it's up to two years with that to even happen. If a child, if a parent knows that their child has autism in year four, but you have to wait until year six, and that might not even happen, that once again, information, it won't be passed on properly to the secondary school when they go into year seven, and it, the system has, has failed them. Mm -hmm. I think... The NHS, CAMS, all, we know they're under a lot of stress. We know that it's not working in this, the current government we have. Like, if, if we're going to talk about CAMS, let's talk about the other things above CAMS as well. That is, it's just not working. And it trickles down right into the education system. And we are failing. Like, I'm not going to say we, because, you know, we don't <laughs> yeah. intentionally want to fail our, our children. But mm. the children are being failed. Like, CAMS is just, they're, they're going to end up, like, for me, I don't think it's, sustainable the way the way it's going it's not going to work and it's going to end up being worse if it's if it's a three-year wait now i bet it's going to be four or five years mm. it's, it's, yeah it's just not working it's tricky because i feel like that kind of leaves parents at a disservice and it's just like okay well professionals can't even help me i'm not a professional I don't know what my child needs and how to respond. Yes, I can Google certain things. I can do a little bit of research. I might be able to connect with people, but I live with my child 24 seven. Do you get what I mean? No one sees the struggles. No one understands what I'm going through in that respect. Um, so have you, in terms of like schools really, do they have any services potentially that parents can actually access if their child is to be diagnosed or they're going through that whole waiting list with CAMS. Is there something that they can kind of tap into um, should they be experiencing this? Um, so I know that there's like 
like what you're saying, the blacks and mamas, I guess like relying on, I guess, charities or like independent services or even like relying on members of staff that are not properly trained. So it's kind of like using the resources until they get that diagnosis. It's kind of like relying on things that may work, may not work. So actually, I feel like, like you said, it's putting the children at a disadvantage because we're not giving them what they actually deserve. And I think CAMs are under a lot of pressure, mm-hmm. but there then needs to be something else. You know, if we, we recognise that that's a problem, what is the government doing? What is the local authorities doing to replace that service or fill in the gaps until they get the actual support that they need? It's really difficult. Mm-hmm. And um, I think as professionals and as a SENCO and as a SEM consultant, they're looking at us for the answers. Like, so what are you going to do to get me that support or what can you give to my child and it's like sometimes we don't have the answers it's like you know we're having to wait whether it's three years two years 20 weeks Mm. that's a long time and those children are suffering and sometimes actually um going backwards a lot of the time and then it's adding on additional needs in the process as well so it's just really really difficult for us trying to battle with this system Mm. yeah this is an off-the-cuff question. Don't feel obligated to answer. What professionals do you feel like you um, have barriers or it's more challenging for you to work with? In a, col- <laughs> in a collaborative way. <laughs> That's fine. That was funny. I love that. You woke us up. <laughs> I was going to say cams and social care. Yes. Yeah. yes. We had a conversation yeah, yeah. about social this care. camera as well. Yes. So, no, yeah. go on. Yeah. Tell me, tell me. Spill the beans, guys. Ooh, <laughs> no, so, no. You can, obviously, within, you know, what we discussed yeah. off camera, yeah. but like, just tell me, I wouldn't say a pet peeve, but what are your professional frustrations with trying to work with maybe social work, um, social care, and also um, CAMS? Can I put a little twist on here? Yeah, because go ahead. for me, um, as a professional as a, and also a parent Correct. of five uh, children of diagnosed autism, I mm-hmm. think that I'm in that in between whereby I, I can relate on a, on a professional level, but also relate on uh, a, on a parent. parenting level. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I can say that I've had difficulty myself mm-hmm. on a personal level with with all of the service not actually working collaboratively together. And I think that is the problem is that no one is actually working together and that's where we're falling short in between different services. And I, I would say, based on my own experiences, that there is definitely a gap there between all services and that's the reason why a lot of the children and families are being failed because some children like my, for example, my own son, he only got his diagnosis at 24 of autism. And I knew at four he was autistic. And I've had to kind of go to knock on the door to all services, including CAMS (laughs) and social care. And uh, they've just turned me away. So I fully understand um, that it's tricky. And if you knock on the door, you don't get the help. What what do you do? Mm. But for me, what I did do was I... you know, not everyone can become a teacher. I became a teacher to upskill myself. So what I would say is where possible, um, look at the school policies, you know, read a little bit on your child's diagnosis, um, look at how the education healthcare plan is devised, look at all sections, check to see if your child is getting the right type of support, making sure that any reports from um, NHS or any diagnosis reports are filtered within the actual plan to make sure that the individual needs are being met. Mm -hmm. Um, Even if you can't 
open doors for other things, at the very least you can do is cross-reference and make sure that all that information is in the plan so that when your child does, you know, get go to school, they are getting what they need. Um, and I think these are the kind of the small things that you can do at the beginning stages. And you will find that if your child has got one diagnosed, they've probably got several others. And, and that's also another problem as well, because it all comes down to, you know, what, for me, in my case, funding money. Mm. And it's a big yeah. thing. I was going to, yeah, I think that is probably the biggest issue <laughs> that most lo local authorities do have is the funding, funding and who, what service pays for what. Yeah. That's the issue because everyone's got to protect their budgets. Yeah. Um, so if you're looking at it from a financial perspective, I need to protect my budgets. And technically that's not really my designation. Um, do I have to walk <laughs> out? Yeah. Um, so it's really tricky. It would have been really good to have a solicitor on here as yes, well, yeah, really. Yeah. I actually um, met with one not too long yeah, ago. Yeah, go on. We did meet with um, like the Senkos across the different schools. Okay. And they gave us advice on, you know, when we're getting EHC, the educational healthcare, healthcare plan plans, consultations yeah. come through mm -hmm. and making sure we're checking these things thoroughly to see if we can meet the, need of the meet the needs of the child. And if they don't send all the paperwork through. So, for example, they might send the, the draft template of the EHCP mm. with the letter to say you have 15 days, mm -hmm. 15 working days mm -hmm. to um, or whatever to get back to us. However, you can go back to them and say, well, I don't have an updated EP report. I don't have the updated speech and language report. All these other things that should be in there that is not there, which means you can extend your time as a mm -hmm. Senko. You, I can say, well, I need more time to look through these documents to say this is I need to make a, you know, a proper valuation of can mm -hmm. I meet this child's needs or not? Because if, if I'm going to accept them to my school and then I can't meet their need, I'm going to be held okay. you know, accountable yeah. for that. So I think one thing that um, really stuck out to me that was mentioned is that when it comes to the funding, um, I know some, you know, a lot of local authorities, they have the banding as mm -hmm. to, you know, how much is wherever or how much they can allocate. Mm -hmm. And they say, oh, but we've got we've given you the highest band. <laughs> and then but what I found out is that that's actually not true. Mm. So where they say that this is their highest band, they can't put a cap on it to say, oh, we can only give you 22,000. If a child needs one to one TA, I can assure you in this economy, 22,000 pounds is not going to pay for someone's yearly salary. Mm. And you're also forgetting the on cost of um, hiring someone as well. So if I need to hire someone for this child, according to the EHTP that you have provided, but you're not giving me the money for it. Well, of course, that? we're going to fail that mm. child because they don't have that resource. And one thing that we... Um, we all need to understand is that TAs are our most valuable resource when it comes to special educational needs. And I'm saying that because they are the people who are working with these children day in, day out. They mm. spend more time in school with us than they may do with their own parents at home. Mm. So you need those people who are the specialist TAs around behavior or SEMH or autism or, the, you know, those people who they know their stuff. They know how to engage and interact and make sure that that, the, um, that child's needs are met. Mm. Why would you not? If the local authority are kind of preventing you from doing that, you can go back and argue your case. Mm. And I, I would definitely tell every Senko, always go back and argue your case because at the end of the day, when the annual review comes around and then they say, oh, the, on the outcome, section F, what have you met? What have you done? Um, well, I couldn't really meet those because I didn't have a TA. That's yeah, not, it's not good enough. Do you think yeah. a parent <laughs> sitting beside no. will be like, oh, yeah, that's fine. I get no, it. Yeah. You've had a whole year. Yeah. We need to really make sure that everything we need, we're fighting for it. And that's what we were talking about earlier, that we have to 
um, as professionals, as parents, as a family, we have to work together. We both have to be the advocates. We shouldn't have to fight. Yeah. I know Simone was saying that, you know, she had to fight just for, um, I hope you don't mind me no, saying no, this, no, but no, you no, had no. to fight just to ensure that your child, your children, they get what they need. Yeah. You shouldn't even have to fight. But if we're, but it's, we don't want to fight against each other, but the Senko's not doing this or the school's not doing that, but the parents not doing that. We need to be on the same page and we you know, we have to advocate for these children and we have to fight the system together, not against mm. each other. Mm. Otherwise, we're just going to end up just, just more fights and more fights and, <laughs> and more waiting lists. Yeah. And in debt. And in debt. Yeah. 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 I think the for me, the biggest mm-hmm. battle has been working with local authorities. Like, mm. like we said before, funding. Mm. They like to pass the buck and say, no, I'm not responsible for paying for that. And then you have to go to the other um, professionals. And then it's like, you're just chasing and you're never actually getting anywhere. So again, the child has been failed. Mm-hmm. And I also feel like um, some local authorities, I'm not going to name any of those, mm-hmm. but um, we were saying earlier that we have to provide so much information, provide so much evidence, do so much work to get an EHCP in place. And, I, and it kind of feels that they're working against us and not with us. So mm-hmm. a lot of them are being refused for such silly things and then they will say we need this we need you to can I have an example of sorry just a silly thing that okay. might, a child Apologies. might be refused so they might for. say yeah. for example Kevin was saying we need to have two rounds of assessed plan do review on okay. top of the evidence that's been provided okay. so that's basically setting targets for the child and then leaving it a couple of weeks and putting things in place and then seeing how that goes doing an evaluation and then um, changing things if need be so like doing that over a course of a couple of terms. Mm-hmm. So again, that's just prolonging the whole um, process. Process. The process. The process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And actually, again, the child is obviously can go backwards. Um, we have a lot of children that are, you know, not wanting to go to school for whatever reasons. There's just so many different implications that, you know, if we actually moved together, we work together and mm. move quickly for these children, there's so much that we could do for them to help mm. them to progress. Or even, I was just going to touch yeah, on ahead. that, mm. or even during that time, a child gets excluded. Yeah. Family excluded. Yeah. yeah. You know, that happened to my son, you know, during that time where they should, and he still didn't end up with an educational healthcare plan. Mm. So it it's not only delay tactics, it's also failing the children in the interim. Mm-hmm. And they are aware of this. And it's, it's just very sad that, you know, the yes. local boroughs are aware that if they put this in place, actually the end result could have been different. Mm-hmm. What annoys me about that specifically is in when you're applying for the, the EHCP, you have the evidence in there mm. of the things that were recommended by the educational psychologist, by the speech and language yeah. therapist, by the OT. You've put it in there as evidence, but then they're still asking for that whole assess plan, do review cycle. I'm like, well, if you read it in the first place, you wouldn't be asking me this. Yeah. But it's just, they like you said, they're buying themselves time, isn't it? it is. Because yeah. if it yeah. wasn't that, it would be something else that they yeah. want. Yeah. So we... And it's almost like they they up in the threshold without actually telling you. Yeah. So yeah. you're not actually realising that the yeah. threshold is moving. It has increased. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it's like, no, this is low threshold. Yeah. Yeah. It's not meeting yeah. our requirements, unfortunately. Back mm. on. Yeah. Because you mentioned about the exclusions. And we can't, well, we can't ignore that because we know it's black Caribbean yes. children. You just mm-hmm. tapped you know into what oh, I was going to say. Go on, go on, go on. Because it's yeah. like, we're failing children mm-hmm. that don't have the support they need for, um, in regards to their special educational need and then we look at the statistics around those who are excluded the most mm-hmm. what do we see and this is why i'm taking it back to when i was working in a pupil referral unit what did we see i saw the students who looked like me students who were failed um because their needs weren't met were still waiting for the ehcp so we excluded them within that time 
but then there were also some schools that were, you know, the whole dual rolling thing. So some of these students were academically able. They still yeah. had a need, but they were acad- academically able. So then we can still keep their GCSE result or grade on our roll mm. to say they, you know, they add That's to our progress. Yeah. They add to, to the our attainment eight <laughs> scores and all these things. I was just like, oh, mm. y'all slick. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't want to do the work to support them. them we're going to do it here, but then you want to take the credit when they've actually done well in their yeah. GCSEs as well. So that's quite interesting. It's, it is yeah. interesting. You tapped into what I was literally about to go into. We are... Um, predominantly I don't know what you identify as Paige but in terms of like our identities black women black mothers black parents um and I don't know what your your um experiences have been Simone but I I do feel like and this is just my personal opinion guys you know I share this all the time um that maybe when it comes to our counterparts they are maybe more well adversed with the processes um and when I say that I mean to say that they're not going to let it go. Like, so if they believe that their child has got, they're diagnosing their child even before a professional has diagnosed their child, yeah? Mm -hmm. Seeing it time and time again. Whereas uh, maybe a family from an ethnic minority group who doesn't know the system very well, who doesn't know what these diagnoses even are, we ain't using that language. What is autism? What is ASD? We don't even recognize it. Mm-hmm. We're not even accepting mm-hmm. that that diagnosis even exists. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So my child is normal. They're just different. They're normal. Mm-hmm. They're, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I just want to know, like, in terms of like the barriers for black parents in terms of accessing that support, because it is something that is, and we've spoken about the people referral units, the statistics are there, who's in there, so on and so forth. We know about the gun and knife crime that's, you know, escalating within the community. We know that a lot of these young people out there probably do have additional needs. They've got definitely got emotional needs. Mm. You know, there might be behavioural needs that have been unassessed and they've just, you know, they've gone to PRU, not worked out, they've been kicked out of PRU, move, 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 move. No school's going to accept them. And then they're just out on the roads doing whatever they're they're doing. Mischief. Mm. What are your views on like that aspect? And how do you feel that parents of um maybe ethnic minority children? I don't like using these terminologies, but this is what is on paper. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What do you think that those parents can do? different differently or what do you think needs to be done it's a two kind of edged question what do you think needs to be done to support these parents more and I'm just going to take black certain mamas out of this because I didn't know they existed before I was on Instagram yeah so let's just say you're not even on Instagram what do these parents do what do black professionals do uh I I think that's a long one um Okay, so as a parent for me, mm-hmm. what I did before Blacks and Mamas, the I did kind of form up with other parents that I knew had children either similar to mine or uh, was struggling or, you know, had a battle on their hands. And so all I did was gravitate to them and share what I was going through. And they might know someone that knows someone else and they might you know, come and say like this solicitor or oh, there's another forum. And I think it's word of mouth. I think it's mm-hmm. about sharing. And I think by sharing within our community, 
is the best way forward because without that, you're not actually going to be able to, I guess, educate yourself fully. You're not going to be able to read up on, you know, every diagnosis, but by sharing information or, you know, going to different platforms, um, meeting with other people like-minded to yourself or other professionals that kind of understand what you're going through as a, as a black professional or black, uh, you know, mama or papa, you know, whatever it is, uh, it's, I think that's the only way for me by sharing and researching and talking to others actually helps upskill yourself individually mm -hmm. and inform yourself of the different diagnoses. But also you've got the first hand experience, you're living in it. You've got, you know, the, the stripes, if you want to say the stripes, you know, because you've got that child at home. And so I think for me, even before I became a teacher, I, I classed myself as someone that was skilled up and professional within my home, mm -hmm. knowing my children's diagnosis. And the fact that I have learned all of my children's diagnosis and reading up on them and trying to inform myself um, of their needs um, is made me a professional in its, in, a, in its entirety without even being a qualified teacher. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, sharing information, um, talking to other people, um, go to different workshops, um, learning, even if it's just learning Makaton signing or, you know, just just getting yourself involved. I know it's difficult for parents because when they send their children to school, um, a lot of the children like in my, in my school, once the parents send them to school, that is it. They are off and they're doing what they need to do, cramming everything in that day. They don't have time to go to a workshop to upskill themselves. But I can assure you that it's important to do so. Um, and I know that from my own personal experience, because by doing that, when they're older, I find it's a lot more harder. When they're in primary school, is is you can get away with certain things. But I think when they reach a certain age, secondary school is a lot harder to access um, support. And so the crucial time is when they're younger, because once they get to secondary school, once they get to 18 or 25, like my son is, it's all the doors are almost closed. And I know it sounds, you know, terrifying. I don't want to, you know, you know, get anyone feared for that point in their child's life. But it is, it's the truth. What happens is, is that the doors start to close um, and it's you're on your own almost. And so by upskilling yourself and sharing and being in touch with other people that, you know, may be going through similar to yourself, you will not feel on your own. Mm -hmm. And and that's the most important thing is even if you can't physically do something to change things, the fact that you have someone listening to you and, you and giving you advice, whether or not it's a friend, it helps that person because, you know, although we haven't touched on it yet, there is that element whereby mental health kicks in. You know, you have to make sure, and I know you guys said to me earlier on, you know, what are you doing for yourself? Mm -hmm. Because what happens is juggling work as well as having children with additional needs is, is, is draining, it's difficult. And it's not that I would take that away because I love my children, but it's a job in itself. And um, you've got to have your head on strong and you've got to be focused, you've got to be vigilant. And you've, you, it's almost like you've got police what's going on in your house mm -hmm. separately from work. And so you've got to have that inner strength. And in order to have that inner strength, you've got to make sure you have me time as well. And you've got to make sure that your mental health is, is where it should be. Because if it, if it isn't, you cannot advocate for your children. Mm -hmm. You cannot protect them and guide them. And you cannot be their voice. Mm -hmm. And it's important that 
you know, as parents um, and even as, you know, a professional as well or a teacher, you've got to make sure that, you know, if you're fighting for someone or fighting for your own children, you've got to make sure that you're fully equipped, but also ready to do so. And that means that mental health has to be to one side and you've got to make sure that you protect them because if you don't who's going to do the job and so it's important to have that time for you and to share and to talk to others and let it all out if you need to cry you cry I cry nearly every day I think you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it's just important to do that and that's that's the only kind of advice I can think of now that's important is to share with other people what you're going through and not to be ashamed of it it's it's okay and by doing so other people may share what they've gone through and actually you may learn something together thank you yeah absolutely Um, i'm just thinking it it is great that we have black stem professionals i was gonna say we don't i mean growing up when i was in school i mean we hardly saw any black teachers anyway (laughs) so the fact that we're here it's like okay that's great Mm. um i was talking to them earlier about for me, when I was working in the people referral unit, that cultural barrier and, you know, being culturally sensitive as well. So, for example, as a Nigerian, I had um, a student who he had needs, but it was just bad behavior. And then when his dad now came to the school and was talking about, you know, let's get him assessed. We're going to go down the EP route. It was just straight up in Yoruba, in my language. No. No. Yeah. Um, my child is fine. There's nothing wrong with him. Da, 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 da. But he that particular parent has, has had bad experiences with other um, STEM professionals or SENCOs who um, were not, you know, black African or just black or somebody who understood mm-hmm. culturally, you know, in our culture, some things are, you know, are a taboo or, par- or people don't like talking about it. Mm-hmm. However, we are becoming more knowledgeable and we are educating and researching and things like that. But I was able to communicate to that dad in a way that was like, first of all, I spoke in my language. Now my Yoruba is not great, but <laughs> I was able to talk to him well enough where he could speak to me and felt comfortable speaking to me, explaining what he's, you know, what his fears are around mm. STND and the labels. And I don't want this to hinder my child in any way, which he never expressed that before. He was just kind of, he felt that the previous schools kind of just, you know, they didn't explain things to him. They just told him, only called him when his child did something wrong. Mm, okay, yeah. And he was just, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Mm. But when I was able to say, no, this is what we're going to do. This is what the EP can do. This is what we can do in the meantime while he's here. Mm-hmm. And this is what the EHCP means. This is what this is why we're having this meeting. This is why we have all these stakeholders here. Breaking it down in a way that, because I could relate to him as a Nigerian, that made it easier. And I think it's important that representation is a big thing. Absolutely. It's so important that we have people who look like us in the room, at the table, supporting these children so that the parents know already, oh, there's someone who looks like me. Maybe she understands. Mm. I'm Jamaican, they're Jamaican. Maybe they understand. I'm Nigerian, they're Nigerian. I'm from, you know, Ethiopia or Sudan or Ghana or wherever it is in the world. Mm. But there's that cultural sensitivity that we have there because I know how to communicate with a fellow Nigerian. You know, sometimes people say that we're loud mm. or, you know, people who are not Nigerian will say, oh, they're quite aggressive. Mm. But it's not that we're being aggressive. We're just very passionate the way we talk and we can be loud. But it's just that we're saying we're trying to communicate something to you because we don't feel like we're being heard, maybe. Mm. But then you're going to say it as that parent was quite aggressive towards me. That's already um, breaking down the relationship yeah. between the parent and the school. But having people of African and Caribbean descent who can be at the table, at the forefront, explaining to these parents why we're doing what we're doing. That is so important. And I think that's where a lot of schools are missing it. Mm. Because if you have a school that's 90%, the cohort, um, 90% black, African-Caribbean, everyone on your senior leadership team 
or 90% of your teachers are white, tell me exactly how they relate. I, I don't know. Can you help me out? No, I can't <laughs> help you. Tell me, tell me how. We're all Londoners. To, but, but, <laughs> but, how are you able yeah. to really tap into what is going on in that child within their life, community, they can, within yeah. what's going on within their life? And mm. oh, You can't, you know, and I'm not saying that you can um, only black teachers can connect with black students. That's not what yeah. I'm saying. I had white teachers, Asian teachers that I could connect with. But there's something about the, the cultural aspect of it that mm. I feel is being missed. Mm. And everyone is so big on the whole, oh, we're so diverse and inclusive and yeah. equity. Yeah, we love it. I don't feel like it's really embedded in the fabric of like, or the DNA of the schools that we work in. It's a tick box. It's a tick box. It's yeah. Black person, tick, tick. black kid, tick. tick. We yeah. did a black history month activity, tick. I'm like, mm, no, that's not really how it works. Mm. If you want me at the table, be willing to hear my voice. Mm. Mm. I love that. You don't that. want me there, just <laughs> let me go. Yeah. 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 One thing I'll say is that I really do um, agree with what you said about there needs to be representation of mm-hmm. black people um, higher up in SLT, whatever it may look like. But we have to be. Um, realistic that sometimes it's not always mm-hmm, the case okay. so when it's not the case things that I would suggest is just being aware as parents and um, carers that you know schools generally do really want the best for your child so you know if you are liaising with somebody and you kind of feel like you know that person they're not really connecting so it's about trying to find somebody within the school within um, the system who is there to support you that you can kind of work with because it's all about working together. Mm-hmm. Um, a, ma- a major part of the SEND code of practice, and it says it about a million times, mm. is that parent voice is really, really valuable. It's really, really important. So we do want to work with parents and um, we're, ne- we're never working against parents. And sometimes it feels like, you know, my child has been labelled with this. It's quite a big thing. It's quite a stressful thing. And professionals need to be understanding of that and being able to like have a bit of patience, work with them. Build, we was talking before about building relationships with mm. children, but we have to also be aware that some parents actually have got needs as well. Yeah. Um, mm. So being able to build relationships before you do anything is the most important thing. Mm. And I think it's something that we need to be aware about, be aware of, sorry, as professionals and as parents. Just a t- we're a team. Mm. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. That was really insightful. I know we crammed a lot in into such a short space of time. Um, I think it's really, really important that um, parents know what it looks like from the other side. Um, Actually, professionals do really want to support you. They do really want to be there for your children. They do want to, you know, help your children have the best foot forward in life in terms of their academic, um, you know, um, span in terms of primary um, secondary and moving on forwards but then also hearing how actually professionals can be better at what they do in in terms of like supporting children and being proactive with it um, but then also hearing the internal struggles that you have um, from maybe other services I won't name their names <laughs> um, but are any of you on social media and do you not want to be connected with or not I don't know okay so that's fine and what i'll do is i'll collect their details everyone it will be in the bottom of the the video um and it's absolutely fine if you don't want to but some parents may want to message or dm or just say hey i need some support with this do you mind giving me some advice i don't know this has happened or so and so forth um but you can also go through the black send mamas Marsha is excellent she responds to dm straight away um and she'll message and she's really really helpful and i'm sure she can connect you with the right support or the right network um for 
whatever your needs may be. Um, guys, we are Mama Drama Podcast. Make sure you're subscribed, hitting the notification bell so you don't miss a video. And I'll be back with another. Bye. Thank you.